0: Hello listeners, my name is Arno and I'm the founder of Revelator Studio. Welcome to the Truth is Golden podcast. This show is about creative minds and the secret sauce behind their success. It is for people who are interested to learn about creativity and its potential to make the world a better place. On this episode, we are talking to David Bowick, Principal at Blackwell Engineers. David talked to us about creativity, working with architects and his biggest sources of inspiration. We're here today with uh, David Bowick at Blackwell. Thanks, David, for uh, doing the interview with us. Well, thanks for thinking to ask me. This is fun. Uh, So what I'd like to start with is, uh, could you tell our audience uh, who you are and where you come from? Sure. Um, so Dave Bowick, obviously, is my name. Um,
1: I graduated from Engineering in Engineering in 1990, and have been working at Blackwell pretty much ever since. Um, Blackwell was founded by Walter Blackwell. Walter retired in about 2006, and I bought the, the balance of the firm from him, and, and now I've got a number of partners uh, that have come up through the firm. I've taught quite a bit. I taught at U of T, the structures component in the architecture faculty for about ten years, and and uh, I really enjoy teaching and lecturing. I continue to do that. And uh, as a firm, we we tend to do the uh, harder and more specialized projects, or we they're, they're the ones that we tend to enjoy. Um, is the the more difficult and specialized projects. So. You know, as, as engineers, we, we, um, we consider design as problem solving. And, uh, and as engineers, we like to solve problems. And the harder the problem, the, the more interesting the problem is for us. And, and uh, it happens that great architecture is, is a generator of great problems. And so we, uh, we find ourselves working on, on really good architecture.
0: So what did you want to be growing up? An architect. An architect. <laughs>
1: Yeah, I wanted to be an architect, and I went to McGill, and, and uh, McGill, you have to do a common... The architects and engineers have a common year, and uh, by the end of that year, I was enjoying engineering and figured that I would I would finish the engineering and then think about going back to architecture if I chose to, uh, but I was really enjoying engineering, and, and it's been a great path for me uh, because I believe that I've had had an opportunity to have more of an impact on better architecture as an engineer than I probably would have as had I been an architect. So what aspects of engineering do you like the most? Kind of broadly, philosophically, I like problem solving I, and I like it best if there's something that hasn't been done before. Those are the projects that I like the best or the problems that I like solving the best. So that's kind of broadly. Um, Specifically, I I really enjoy tensile fabric structures. They're they're sort of the the most complex and interesting uh, structures for me, is the tensile structures um, and large deformation structures. Um, So I spend a lot of my personal engineering time doing those types of things. But aesthetically... I just love our buildings that are beautiful, whether it's a whether it's a library or a community center or a custom home or um, anytime there's a beautiful building, I get a charge out of working on it. So, who
0: would be your biggest inspiration as a as an engineer? Peter Rice. Peter Rice for sure. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, he was sort
1: of a polymath for one thing. You know, he did all kinds of different things within the uh, within the field. Um, including a lot of tensile structures he was pioneering uh you know cable wall construction and i'm also kind of inspired by him because he was not a uh, he wasn't a he wasn't a highly polished guy he wasn't a big ambitious businessman he was he was a kind of a scruffy humble engineer that was just passionate about the engineering and um and uh, and I think, like me, he was following the interesting problems and, and uh, wound up with this wonderful partnership with Renzo Piano, as you know. I, I thought you were going to ask me hard questions, but boy, that was an easy one.
0: But they're coming. They're coming. How would you describe your creative process? Uh,
1: so, so the creative process to me is... is um, is about problem definition and problem solution. So, so describe a problem and then solve it. And um, and you know, when we're working with an architect, it's it's often the architect describes the problem, the engineer solves the problem. Um, we're working with a contractor, we describe the problem, the contractor solves the problem. Um, so, so there's always a problem definition problem solution component um, to the creative process and engineers collaborating with architects tend to live in the in this this kind of problem solution world um, and to me the 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 um, great design is a function of how well the problem is described so so when we have um when we work with an architect who kind of sets up the parameters for a beautiful problem well then we can come up with a beautiful solution and that's a that's a a great design so that to me is design and then within the problem solution world um i always see it as sort of three steps there's uh, understanding the precedence. So, so when we're dis- when a problem is described to us, we want to understand how's it been solved before. Has it been solved before, and how has it been solved before, and was that a good solution? Um, so, understand the precedence, uh, refine it as necessary, um, and then re- refine it as appropriate, and innovate when necessary. So we might find that we've got a, a problem that's slightly adapted from an existing problem, and, and so a solution can be adapted from an existing solution or we may find that there's a, a, um, a brand new problem and we need a brand new solution. Uh, so so we, we try and follow those steps because we think that, that, um, that following those steps will, will prevent us from imposing old solutions on new problems. And to me, that's that's kind of um, that's the worst thing you can do as a designer is kind of shoehorn shoehorn a, a um, an old solution onto a a new problem.
0: And so, do you find that you ever have to reframe a problem that's been given to you to come up with a more a different or more innovative solution? Sometimes, sometimes we really
1: we really try to. Not, and we do see this in engineering, and I'm sure we're guilty of it sometimes too. We really, really try not to reframe the problem to suit a preferred solution, because, because to me that will result in architectural compromise. So, we really try hard not to redefine the problem to suit, um, to suit a preferred solution. But what we do do is. Um, is we'll occasionally challenge challenge an architect who comes to us with a preconception of the solution. You know, I, I, architects fall into multiple camps. of course. Um, there are the architects that come with a graphic idea and no thought about a solution. And, and in some ways they're the easiest to work with. Um, we get some of our, our most talented and competent colleagues won't come to us until they've thought the problem through. And in some, in, and sometimes they uh, they've limited their, their vision by their own sense of, of appropriateness of the solution. And so sometimes we'll try and roll them back to say what is it you're actually trying to achieve because there's a possibility that there is another solution that that, uh, uh, that may suit your vision more appropriately, even though you haven't articulated it. Um, so for example, we'll occasionally, if we, if we see a building that's an unconditioned building, we'll, we'll ask them, hey, do you wanna think about putting a fabric roof on this thing? You know, it, without changing the building form, just substitute that layer of plywood and membrane and insulation and, and, uh, and corrugated metal, and substitute that with a single layer of PVC, because now you've got a translucent roof. It's an unconditioned space that may not have occurred to them. They're bringing, they're bringing sort of preconceived notions about what the assembly should be. So we'll occasionally kind of back it up and, and, and challenge that preconception in case there's a way of, um, uh, of bringing a solution that, that will enhance
0: the, the design. So you and I both work with architects in different capacities, obviously. What would you say is the biggest challenge in dealing with that industry? You know, th- this is going to sound like just
1: a simple nod to my colleagues who just might be listening to this, but it's not actually. We're the, I have to start by saying that, that the blessing of working with architects, I mean, I, we work with architects, architects work with owners. Um, the blessing of working with architects is that they're professionals and they're experienced. Um, and they know what our role is on a project and they know what their role is on a project and they have the ability to recognize value when we bring it to a project and I feel great um, sympathy for architects who are working with clients and the client may have Great ambition, but have never built anything before. And then the architect needs to educate the client. The client may not be a professional. The client may not have an understanding of what value is uh, or what appropriate compensation is. I'm not saying we always get appropriately compensated, but but I would say almost always. If we're not appropriately compensated, then then the person we're working for understands that we're not properly compensated and there's a degree of empathy with our our clients so so those are the very positive things about working with architects i think the challenge working with architects is um, is that there is a systemic flaw in in the way architects win work that makes it inevitable that low fees will will um uh, will win the day most of the time. And, um, and that's, a, that's a terrible challenge um, because you, you either work within your fee and, and do a job that you know is less than appropriate or you exceed your fee and somebody pays that price. And too often it's, it's the staff that pay that price. Um, you know, if you've, if you have a wealthy patron or something, well, maybe you've got somebody else funding your, your research and exploration, but more likely, more likely that overage comes at the expense of staff working personal hours. And, uh, I think it's a systemic problem. I don't know what the systemic problem is, but I think it's systemic. It's not, it's not cultural, um, because I work with architects and we share the we share a same value set and, and I know that they know that that's a problem and yet they fed, they're constantly facing a solution where we either have a low fee and win the work or we have an appropriate fee and we don't get any work. So I think that's the biggest challenge. And so
0: do you have um, like a, a, some thoughts on solutions to avoid that problem? Well,
1: um, be prepared to to accept not getting the work is the solution, but it's an awful lot easier to say than do. Um, you need just enough work to survive to allow yourself to say no to work that um, that uh, doesn't pay appropriately. And almost all institutional work, all the best projects, go to you know go to the low fees. So I'm not sure what the solution, you know, you you could say I won't work without a proper fee, but you've, you just shut yourself out of, out of uh, almost all public work. And, and uh, you know, not everybody can find a,
0: a wealthy patron to sustain their practice. Mm-hmm. And I guess that's a, a problem you'd have to deal with if you have staff to take care of. So that's that, right. That makes a lot of sense.
1: Yeah. Now, here's something, you know, what I was thinking about this today, and I, I don't know there's a kernel of truth in what I'm going to say, but I haven't thought it through well enough to really to, to, to have a fully, fully blown philosophy. But but we pay overtime. We always have. And that's been non-negotiable in our office. Now, not everybody always charges all their hours. Not every hour shows up in the timesheets. But, but we never, ever challenge anybody's hours, which puts a higher level of pressure on us than we would um, have if we were paying people salary when when we could take advantage of, of five or ten or fifteen free hours a week um and that constant pressure has been good for us in in terms of forcing us to 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 charge higher fees and it shut us out of a lot of projects um but we survived, and uh, and we've found a, a a range of projects that pay appropriately because we've had to because we've had that financial pressure. Um, so there's something there. There's something about not allowing yourself the the easy road of uh, of accepting unpaid effort that puts an
0: upward pressure on fees. So what you just said is very interesting, and um, it, to me, it shows that you actually care about your staff. Do you find that you get better work done because of the way you treat your staff?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I, would, I would say so. I would challenge the, associate, the assertion that, that, that any of our architect friends don't care about their staff, but we, get, we have a very, very high level of engagement um, in our office. Like, like I would think top 10 percentile, top 5 percentile, very high level of engagement. And, uh, and they have to be somehow
0: correlated. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. <laughs> what would you say is the most important quality for an engineer if you had to pick one?
1: I would think open-mindedness. The best thing that we can do as an engineer is um, understand and adapt the values of our clients. And not every client is gonna come to us with with the same set of values. But when we do our best work, it's by, our best work is measured against the value set of the person we're doing the work for, not our own value set. And so the better better we understand the values of the person we're working for, the better ultimately the solution we're gonna provide. So to be specific, you know we're going to work on some projects where where the um, the only thing that matters is budget, and and so what we need to do is come up with an extremely economical solution, which means sort of accepting the uh, the design compromise where that's appropriate because that's not what matters, and then we're going to have other projects where where the only thing that matters is this. Uh, you know 10 meter cantilevered living room um can be greater than 800 millimeters in depth structural depth and however much tonnage it takes or whatever you know heroic um structural move it takes to make that happen is the only thing that matters because the critical thing is that big cantilever because of the the uh the way that the building reads in elevation so when we do our, our, our very best work, it's measured against the values of whoever we're working for. And and, uh, and our ability to understand those values is, is what leads to the best solution.
0: So are you saying that the client satisfaction is how you measure the success of a project?
1: Well, that's a lot more succinct than what I said, isn't it? Yeah, I suppose it is. That makes sense. But they don't even know. I, maybe that's not, not entirely true because because the client doesn't know, really. They don't know what the range of possible structural solutions is. So I don't know that they're going to be more or less satisfied with our work, Um, but we'll know. Um, We know what the range of possibilities is.
0: So what I hear is that a lot of what you do is uh, relying on your ability to empathize with your clients. Is that fair to say? I would say, yeah. Yeah, and so what qualities does that require on your part or your staff's part?
1: Well, I think it's I think it's about listening, and not just listening when they're speaking, but listening to to all forms of communication. And when the client is speaking through the architect, what shows up on the drawings, you know when what shows up on the drawings really i mean we can occasionally see that that, that uh, there's something on the drawings where the the architect has set up a, a kind of set of design rules and there's a part that is inconsistent with that design set of design rules that they've established and we can recognize that it doesn't fit and uh and we can talk about how to get that piece out of there you know um so I think it's it is it's about it's about listening in in, in the kind of broad range
0: of whatever listening means. Mm-hmm. What was your what would you say was your most challenging project that you've done to date?
1: We're working on one right now that they're just just driving piles, which is um, uh, Canada's diversity gardens at a Park Conservatory. It's a um, uh, a cable net supporting ETFE pillows so right off the bat technologically it's it's um you know it's a it's kind of a, at the edge of what's being done in the world and then we decided to to dramatically complicate our lives by using a spiral net as opposed to a radial annular net um, so our cables don't follow the geodesic lines of the project which just adds tremendous complication and then, of course, you get all the other complications associated with innovative solutions. That that and how to document the how to document them because because we've never seen a set of documents for something like this before. How do you draw it um, in a way that conveys the information? Where do you find the builder that can actually execute it? And uh, how do you keep up with with uh, uh, with the demands with the site demands? Um, they're very complicated projects. I would say that that's that is the the most challenging
0: to date and so speaking of that project specifically was that the architects desire to have that level of complexity or was it you pushing for a different solution What was uh, the story behind it so the architect came to us
1: they had a building form in mind broadly and uh, their greatest ambition is they needed maximum transparency. So this is an indoor botanical garden in Winnipeg where the days are short in the wintertime. And uh, so they needed maximum transparency to to maximize the amount of available light for the plants. Uh, So the structure needed to be extremely light. So we advocated the notion of a cable net as the the, uh, kind of lightest structure. Um, And in a way, it's not it's not that the structural demand with a cable net is lighter than a frame structure. It's just that you move the biggest demand to the boundaries. So you, you kind of move them to the underground, to the, to the, you know, we have a tension ring in the middle. That's very heavy, this tower, but the, the big roof, then you move you move the demand to the boundaries and now the roof can be as light as the roof can be. So, so we said cable net, we knew there were precedents. We'd done some, some, um, some cable network uh, in the past and then we started looking at what are the um, what are the things that impact cost in an ETFE system ETFE was chosen because it's more transparent, blocks less UV than glass and is much lighter weight and and', uh, and uh, is theoretically less expensive than glass so so it was important that the project was, never had enough budget for the ambition. So we started started looking at what are the things that affect the um, cost of an ETFE system. And the cost of ETFE is not in the surface area because ETFE as a material is very inexpensive. The cost is in the boundaries. Um, it's how much extrusion do you have on the edges. So if we can maximize area relative to boundary, we have an economical solution. Solution: When we take that and look at a form which is broadly circular with a center support and, and radiating um, radiating um, cables, which would be the standard solution, every cable is pie shaped, or every every pillow is pie shaped. Comes from starts at zero and hits the maximum, which means that you have on average twice as much boundary as optimal because it's triangular as opposed to rectangular so we said how do you how do you cover this surface with uh, long pillows that are constant in width so that we minimize the boundary relative to surface and the solution there is a spiral you do it like a like a soft serve ice cream cone. If you wrap it in the spiral, we can make a constant width and minimize the boundary relative to the uh, surface area. So it started with a completely pragmatic solution um, of minimizing boundary area, which also minimizes shading. Um, But that's what dramatically complicates the cable net. Once you're you're supporting load on spiral pillows as opposed to, uh, or on spiral net, as opposed to a radial annular net, Uh, the structural behavior is much more complicated. We didn't know it, we'd never done it
0: before, but we figured it out pretty quick that it was more complicated. So my question is uh, engineering costs versus construction costs. Is that more complex solution that's harder for you to deal with, cheaper to build, and in the end, the higher, I'm assuming higher engineering costs will be um, compensated by the lower construction costs?
1: That's right. Yeah, yeah. So so we pay the price and the owner reaps the benefits. That uh, it, it is certainly much higher engineering cost, We, but we didn't know that going in. And once you commit, you commit. Um, we didn't know that the, the engineering costs were higher. Not that we would have made a different decision anyway. Like if, if we start... If we don't track on a project-by-project basis, it allows us to do this exploration which may cost us on this project, but is more likely to lead to better projects going forward. And if we trace back from this project, which is sort of a, a pinnacle of my personal career, we trace back through a series of, of uh, money losing explorations. you know, that that's how we got here. And, and this is, will lead to to uh, the next expensive project, but more ambitious than, uh, you know, who knows, maybe in 100 years, it leads to financial success.
0: <laughs> so what I'm hearing when you see this is that it's a willingness to take risks on your part that will potentially reap serious benefits down the road. That's right. Yeah. That certainly defies the idea that engineers are risk averse. Yeah. Um, so, as a follow up to that question, is what's your purpose as a either personal or as a company? Like, do you have a broader vision or mission that you're looking to fulfill?
1: We really struggle with trying to define that because anytime we, we articulate anything specific, it is um it's so oversimplifies i mean it, we we can never articulate it in in a uh in a meaningful way it's a conversation not a statement there's not a mission statement there's a mission conversation so there's all kinds of things we want to do we want to make sure that every project we do is better for us having worked on it for us specifically having worked on it and uh um, so I think we want to elevate everything we do, whether it's from a, whether it's from a, a design point of view, an aesthetic point of view, a, a technological innovation point of view, um, a social, you know, uh, the social benefit. Um, I think that's probably as close as I can come to a, a mission and, uh, and, you know we try not to go broke in the meantime but but if we can, but you know what even if we go broke if you if you can live your life elevating everything you touch you you kind of you you die kind of fulfilled i think
0: if you were to tell me this is your your defined mission that's good enough for me as far as i'm concerned it's pretty uh pretty uh high level already it's not like just making money or anything like that so i find that interesting um, so we just talked about your most challenging project. If you could depict some kind of dream project, what would that be like? Yeah, I feel like I'm working on it. To tell you the truth, I think this is it. This is the this is
1: the this is the one I've dreamt of. Um, we have a huge range of of dream projects. I mean, you're familiar, presumably, with with uh, with much of our work. You know the. The uh, the Goldring Athletic Center that we did with MJM, which is where where you and I met, um, was one of those projects. I mean that MJM and Pat Cal like that's a it's a dream team, wonderful people to work with. Like just a as an experience, it was a joy. And then the building is is that extraordinarily beautiful, extraordinarily beautiful building that also was technologically challenging the structure was was extremely difficult and in the end i believe that that uh, we had the opportunity to elevate the project that that it's a better project for for our hands having been on it and that's a uh and i feel that way about the astine park conservatory and, and, uh, and i'm talking about the ones that i'm specifically working on but boy, if you look at the at uh, some of the custom homes that our, our residential team are working on, that are that are really pushing the envelope, or uh, the sports and rec projects that the Ian's team is working on, or the, the amazing like adaptive reuse that, that Christian's team is managing managing to achieve, um, every team in our office is doing things that are 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 uh, are like that. So, where do I go from you know? from from San Point Park I, I don't know you know it'd be really th- a thrill if Adish Kapoor called me up and said hey I'm doing the, some gigantic installation in, in Canada I'd love to, love you to be on my team that'd be thrilling uh, but then we're doing with Ron Arad we're doing a sculpture at One
0: Blur right now which is thrilling you know mm-hmm. uh, so I think the question would be what would Peter Rice do ah uh, what would Peter Rice do what would he, be his dream project no uh, it's kind of a joke <laughs> You know, how do you challenge yourself to get to the next level once you've already accomplished a level of technicality and complexity that's not all that common? That's an interesting question. Well, you, you know what?
1: I, I feel like um, I feel like uh, the progression of our firm and the progression of me as an individual is it's a bit like if uh, you look like a runner if you're if you're running a marathon. Everybody starts out in the pack, and and uh, and if you're in the middle of the pack, all you see is the pack. If you start getting to the head of the pack, you start to realize how far ahead the leaders are, and uh, and I think that's sort of where where we are. There's there is never any sense of of kind of being at the end, and in fact, the 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 more we push it, the more aware we are of how far it can be pushed.
0: So if you're starting to see what the the head of the pack or the leaders of the race for to continue a metaphor are doing, who would those guys be? Like the top two or three firms that you'd have your your you keep an eye on.
1: Well I think Happold. I mean I, I, I've got to really admire Bureau Hapold. They seem to have not fallen into the trap of becoming big and just a big firm doing big projects. You know, we still see if if you look at the most technically advanced projects in the world, you'll still see Happel's name on many, many of them. Um, And then you've got the the smaller firms like Guy Nordenson in in New York, you know, an extraordinary guy and everything he touches he, I mean, that's a perfect example. Everything he touches, he elevates by by the, the fact that he's contributing to that project.
0: Um, Mm -hmm. So going back, if I'm not mistaken, Blackwell has been around for 30 or so years, right? Yeah, 30 years this year, yeah. So, and you've been with it for almost a long time. Almost, yeah,
1: 27 years since I started, but uh, except for the the few very
0: rewarding years that I I spent at Yalas in the 90s. So what was the transition from, I'm assuming you started as an employee, Yeah from employee to owner what what does that look like so um walter blackwell
1: i started and the, the firm was small there were half a dozen of us and and that turned to five and then four and three and two uh, and eventually you know it was it was the terrible recession and and i was the last the last one to to leave and and join yallis um and then things were just starting to turn around in 97 and, and uh, I ran into Walter on the street and, and he said, hey, I was thinking I could use a partner. We're a little bit busy. And, uh, and I had such high esteem for Walter as a human being in my experience um, and, uh, and as an engineer and as a, um, and his kind of his philosophy and his demeanor that I came back as a partner in 97 And then over 10 years, we had this kind of gradual transfer of ownership to the 97 or to 2006 when I was, uh, I think at the time I was a 50, 50 partner and, um, and he wanted to retire. So he retired and I bought him out. Um, and, uh, and then I looked around at all the great people in the office and, and, uh, and immediately started the process of bringing them into the you know my top people in into the fold as partners
0: so is your uh, ambition to create some kind of legacy so after you retire Blackwell goes on oh sure yeah yeah Uh, you know I I think
1: I think there's only um, there's only so much that, that I could personally do but it's extraordinary to to watch the success that I participated in 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 setting in motion you know so so I may never be famous but I am sure that there are at least two or three or half a dozen people in my office that will be you know and and the and the notion that I participated in setting that ball in motion um, of seeing you know one of these people is going to hit the pinnacle
0: you know yeah that must be very rewarding right
1: yeah yeah, it's very exciting to think.
0: So let's talk about things a little different from work. What do you do for fun?
1: Uh, work. Uh, work is very fun. Um, uh, I've got a little boy. He's thirteen months old, and uh, and he's very fun. Uh, my wife and I have. We have a cottage on Lake, on Lake Nipissing and a share of a cottage north of Kingston. So we like to go to the cottage on the weekends and a little fish shack in Nova Scotia. So we spend our time kind of bouncing around between these very scruffy properties in, in very beautiful uh, situations. You know, that's, that's a full life. My wife and I, Shannon, we, we both love to teach and uh, she teaches at U of T right now. But, but uh, we probably spend kind of... I don't know, three or four weeks a year at uh, you know, out of town lecturing at RAIC or OAA or, you know, Woodworks in Vancouver or so in a way those are those are oh, that's kind of work, but that's a holiday. It's a great social network. They're very, very fun. Mm-hmm. Um it's extremely rewarding. She and I are also both right now in the midst of um, a master's of engineering program at Anhalt University the, at the Institute for Membrane Structures. Yeah, so it's a bit like a holiday where you get to, you get together with a bunch of people who have have similar uh, similar interests, and you learn about things that you find interesting, and then you you go to the Bauhaus pub at the end of the day and drink beer with your colleagues. And
0: yeah, it's interesting that in the midst of your career you want to go back to school, and I find that fascinating. It's a, you know we, there's I have no collegial
1: network of people who do memory structures right there's there's um, um, because there's nobody in Canada and there's a small handful of people in the US and and there's a, a fair bit of expertise in Europe but but I have no collegial network here so this is a great way to build a network and and also to fill gaps in my, my knowledge you know there's there's only uh, there's only so much knowledge you can acquire without talking to some experts and and um,
0: mm-hmm. So where do you say? Uh, Would you say you find your uh, inspiration?
1: I I, th- I think I get inspired by every architect I work with that has a good idea, and that's uh, my my wheels churning and how to how to how do I come up with solutions to what? How do I come up with the perfect solution to that problem? And uh, and that's inspiring. And one thing that actually I find really. Interesting, inspiring, and and it's it's the topic of a lecture that I'll do at some point, um, which I'm going to call anthropomimicry. It's it's a I like to look at industrial design because there are you know in industrial design you're designing something that that is going to get repeated a thousand or a hundred thousand or a million times, and there's a there's a level of of refinement and ingenuity in industrial design that we cannot or you don't often see in buildings where everything is a prototype. Mm-hmm. So, uh, But we're, we're solving all the same problems at different scale, but we're solving all the same problems. So I find it really interesting to look at industrial design and and, and think about how the solutions scale. And uh, as, as I started thinking about this as a potential lecture topic, it's amazing how many solutions we've got in our history and portfolio that we've pulled from we've pulled from some industrial like from a car part or a you know a, like a trailer hitch part or or a, you know a, a spring for a basketball
0: net or you know it's interesting you mentioned the <clears throat> design because i find that if you look at say cars or camera equipment there are objects that have been made hundreds of thousands of times millions of times and the evolution of the design is iterated through history, like each generation gets marginally better. Um, And I don't think you see that in architecture as much for the reason you've cited, because everything's a prototype, but would you say there's a way to bring more of that in the architecture and design world? Uh, I think
1: there is, and we do see it. I mean, we see... um, this is going to sound funny given people's reaction to them, but when we see when we look at the um, at the condos downtown, they are no longer a prototype. They're design elements that are different. But but uh, that is a a, a highly evolved um, and highly efficient building model that approaches the the um, the level of industrial design, um, and uh, because because those buildings are built to the same set of constraints. And uh, and if you don't change the constraints, then the solutions evolve and, and become very, very efficient. Same with um, uh, single family ha- homes um, and wood frame construction. That does happen within within architecture and engineering, but it, it takes repetition. It takes, you know, it's, it's funny that it doesn't come from doesn't come from the leading edge in a way that that kind of really uh refinement comes from someone who's trying to build an economic model and it's it, it takes the it takes the um the natural selection process to, to generate that refinement of doing the same thing again and again and again mm-hmm. i don't think i answered your question no but you it was did. an interesting you did it's
0: interesting uh, because i didn't see it that way but now i i see from your perspective yeah makes a lot of sense. It's I guess it's just more visible in industrial design because you see cars everywhere yeah, ever. so it's easy, it's easy to see, right? And every generation evolves marginally, but if you look at 50 years from behind, you know, yeah. cars were they're still basically the same thing, but they're much more evolved. Yeah. So that's interesting. Um, I just want to get on the last couple of questions cuz we've covered a lot of ground already uh do you have a favorite building i i don't know that i do
1: i mean as soon as i say a building i am going to think of another building Mm -hmm. and uh you know i do love the goldring athletics center Mm -hmm. i I love it because i know it intimately Mm -hmm. um and i know the underlying uh challenges it appeals to me as a structural engineer um I love the Wang Dai Sin Tai Chi Temple that that Jim Sutcliffe did in, mm-hmm. in North York that we did with them. I think that's it's extraordinary and beautiful. It's a piece of art, sculpture, and of course it's got a big giant cantilever and uh, and and that's fun and mm-hmm. and uh, we get to participate in it and and that's extraordinary. And what about a
0: building you would not have worked on?
1: I wonder if we should do another question because I know. I know the minute we're not talking about it, I'm going to be calling you up and say, it's this one. This so, is the one. We can this is the project later. that I wish that I had an opportunity to work on. Um,
0: and so we, you mentioned briefly a couple artists uh, like Anish Kapoor and someone else you're working with. I forget the name. What's your take on art? Do you have a favorite type of art, artist that inspires you? Um, I do.
1: I I like big public art. I mean, I love I love paintings. You know, um, um, so I, I love I love decorative art. I love art that you hang on your wall. But I like big public art, and uh, I love the ones that are that are both um, beautiful to look at and have a big impact on the space they occupy. So, so. I'm thinking about something. that I just had an email exchange with Janet Eckelman, who's the net artist, because, because I, I saw something of hers on Google and it made me think to, to reach out. But hers are extraordinary. These big, these kind of big, billowing, colorful nets that, that, that really transform the space that they occupy. Um, and we're doing a project right now with Ned Kahn down at the waterfront, that's uh called the the inverted lake um and uh and it's a series of flapping kind of flapping reflective um uh, pieces that are that when viewed from below are are intended to reflect the to invoke the reflection of the lake i think that's extraordinary that it's structurally interesting and it's um structurally interesting and a beautiful space making device as well you know i have to say i love i love ron baird's big spiky rusty dangerous sculptures like the, like the one of the environment canada building i mean i know that's a very old one but i love it and uh and I, you know we do a lot of work with young and Giroux. I, I i love uh dan young and christian Giroux. i can't categorize their projects because they're all so different but but again they've got that kind of space making quality
0: so public art inspires you. Oh, sure, yeah. Um, I think we're good to wrap up. I just want to give you an opportunity to add some couple last words if you want to. Anything that comes to mind. Well, this has been
1: really interesting for me, and I, I am so pleased that you asked me to do this. I didn't know what I was going to say, and uh, but as soon as you start asking questions and the you know this thoughts start to flow. Um, it's been it's been really fun and and it's really rewarding to articulate things that are that are kind of spinning around in my head gives them definition and and, uh, and
0: substance so so yeah. thank you for that well you're welcome and I find it very interesting to personally get a glimpse in in your mind and what you guys do but I think it's also very interesting for the my audience and yours by extension. To see a little bit beyond the polished surface and more on unstructured thinking.
1: I'm fairly sure no one's seeing a polished surface,
0: Arnold. <laughs> I think they are, but uh, you'd be surprised. All right, thank you very much, David. Okay, thanks, Arnold hi again everyone Arno here I really hope you enjoyed the interview as much as I did remember that you can find us online at rvltr.studio or on instagram and twitter at revelator underscore to until next time salut